everybody can just stand with us. We're going to get our worship on. I'm in a really good mood today, and I just hope you guys can receive that. And if you guys are having a bad day, just close your eyes, lift your hands, and pray to God. And I hope that my good mood can just rub off on everybody. So take some of that.
thankful and I'm so grateful that we have a God that watches out for us. That song says, our God is fighting for us always. That's the, that's the word of God, for his love endures forever, forever beyond our understanding before we were even here. That's the love that fights for us. That's the love that we always talk about that seeks you out. That love that's here, that's present, that wants to connect with you. Um, I just, I encourage you today just to take a little bit of a deeper step into what God is calling you to, wherever he's calling you personally to today. Just take a moment, you're here, you're here. You came to, to meet with God, so meet with him today. Just take a moment, even if it's just to close your eyes and say thank you, even if it's just to say I love you God, just take that moment. Just spend that time with him today. Amen. Soul breathing, I found. 
my life when I laid it down. A bird falling, spirit soaring. I touched the sky when my knees hit the Jesus, the greatest Son. 
is going to come up, and uh, you guys can be seated. You guys can be seated. Thank you. When we sing the song, I always think of God seated on the throne. I, I don't see Jesus on the cross or anything like that. In my mind's eye, there's going to be a day where we worship God for everything that he is, the fullness of what he, who he is, and I'm so excited. Bob, if you can come up, and uh, at this time, we are going to honor our veterans. Come on. Come on. Thank you. I want to thank Terry for setting all this up. Every year he sets this up, and that's, that's awesome. Thank you, Terry.
Those who have served and those currently serving the uniformed services of the United States are ever mindful that the sweetness of enduring peace has always been tainted by the bitterness of personal sacrifice. We are compelled to never forget that while we enjoy our daily pleasures, there are others who have endured and may still be enduring the agonies of pain, deprivation, and internment. Before we begin our activities, we would like to pause to recognize our POWs and MIAs. We call your attention to the small table here on my right, which occupies a place of dignity and honor near the head table. This is set for one, symbolizing the fact that members of our armed forces are missing from our ranks. They are referred to as POWs and MIAs. We call them comrades. They are unable to be with their loved ones and families, so we join together and pay humble tribute to them and bear witness to their continued absence. This table, set for one, is small, symbolizing the fatality of one prisoner, alone against his or her suppressors. The tablecloth is white, symbolic of the purity of their intentions to respond to their country's call to arms. The single red rose in the vase signifies the blood that many have shed in sacrifice to ensure the freedom of our beloved United States of America. The rose also reminds us of the family and friends of our missing comrades who keep the faith while awaiting their return. The yellow ribbon on the vase represents the yellow ribbons worn on the lapels of the thousands who demand with unyielding determination a proper accounting of our comrades who aren't among us. A slice of lemon on the plate reminds us of their bitter fate. The salt sprinkled on the plate reminds us of the countless fallen tears of families as they wait. The glass is inverted, they cannot toast with us. The chair is empty, they are not here. The candle is reminiscent of the light of hope which lives in our hearts to illuminate their way home, away from their captors to the open arms of a grateful nation. Let us pray to God that all of our comrades will soon come back within our ranks. Let us remember and never forget their sacrifice. May God forever watch over them and protect them and their families. We'll now play taps.
Thank you. This is a poem from my book, uh, War Hurts More Than Once. It's my coming home process. Long rows, of, long rows of silver boxes replacing stacked heaps of black rubberized canvas bags. Each one of them marked remains human to be viewed by next of kin only. What are they? but crates stacked in the sun. They came to Vietnam in chartered planes with round-eyed stewardesses and real American food. There was, theirs was either the silence of fear or the youthful banter of foolish bravado. We walked from the plane, if we were lucky, we ran if we landed during one of the frequent rocket attacks. We grabbed our duffels mostly for new pants, and short timers laughed at us as they waited for us to get off the plane as they strolled, calmly strolled to the Freedom Bird going home. Nothing bothered them as they left, nothing except landing helicopters offloading more body bags. I knew that only God's grace saved any of them. I said a quick and quiet prayer of thanks and left. Happiness and sorrow fought for space in their hearts. The world was on the other end of a 19-hour flight. One of the second time that sat next to me in silence, we gripped the armrest in the airplane seats in terror almost trying to lift the plane by the armrests themselves. As we left the ground, there was a single breath exhaled together. Like a sudden gust in a forest, prayers became louder. Tears of joy and sorrow mixed. The vet next to me figured silently, and they looked at me and said, it's good we're landing back at the world. At night, he sighed. Fear will do many things to a man. It will do many things I never thought possible. Damn, I'm 19 and a man now. What a crock of horse pollution. That really sounds stupid. But I was afraid when I landed in country. I was terrified most of the time I was there. Now I'm afraid of leaving. Three hours into the flight, I passed into unconsciousness. Rather, I passed into peacefulness. I woke nine hours later, roused by the sound of cheering as they were playing a West Coast radio station over the PA system. Real civilian music and DJs, yet they never played the news. Maybe they didn't have the heart. We pushed the plane through the air by the will of our spirits. We landed at 2 a.m. in the darkness of California. As we stumbled, fell, groped, and pushed our way out of the plane, 
Some of, us, some of us fell to the ground and kissed the concrete of America, home, the world, reality, the land of the round eyes and the big PX, a place where we thought we were safe. It didn't take long until I learned why the older vet had said what he did. The callousness of the airmen on the base said something uh, loathful, but it was only a beginning, I discovered to my shame and regret. They were reservists, not regulars. They thought we were geeks for not avoid, avoiding Vietnam service. In my first hour back, two fights started. Luckily, only one person went to the base hospital that day, that night. I went to the transfer station for onward movement to Germany. A few said I was lucky, and I didn't understand why. One of the old guys pulled me aside and looked me in the eyes and said, maybe they'll forget where you've been before you come back to the States again. Looking back to that day from a vantage point of 20 years, I learned what he meant. When I finally came back to the States, I had really aged. People hadn't forgotten they had only stopped hating openly. The hate, disgust, and resentment was still there. Polite people simply refused to deal with the veteran at all. It was the loutish, ignorant teenagers that openly jeered. I learned what other vets learned, to stuff my pride of serving my country, to hide the hurt I felt for my friends who came home in a bag or a box, or those who had an arm or leg missing. They couldn't run and hide, I could. It took many years to learn to cope. I had to cope with both my feelings and the projected feelings of my society and culture. In Vietnam, they only tried to kill you. In America, my own people tried to bury me in the pile of the past garbage. Yes, I'm still angry, but I'm better now. I only cry for your ignorance when I see you arming for war. And I don't really mind being forgotten most of the time. Thank you. You guys can be seated. If you're a veteran, please stand. If you guys have served, and I know there's many of you guys, and give these guys a hand. Thank you, guys. Thank you. You guys can be seated. At this time, the guys are going to come up. We're going to take some offering. And, uh, man, I, Veterans Day and Memorial Day and things of that sort always make me think internally of uh, a POW and uh because I grew up in a family where my grandfather never came home from war. So 
So it was. Uh, it's. Uh, it is personal. It's personal, and I know many of you have uh, thoughts and struggles in in that way. And and I, I just. Uh, I I pray for your families, and uh, I just honor that. But the guys can come forward, um, and uh, thank you for giving of your offering. We're gonna pray, and uh, b- before we give, I just want to thank you guys for um, giving in those foster bags. We hit our goal of four, uh, 52 bags. We're hitting for 30 something. We got 52, uh, and I just thank you for your faithfulness of giving, and uh, I, I just want to celebrate that too. But let's pray, Heavenly Father. We just thank you, Lord God. I just ask, Lord, this is just a part of our our service to you, our, our worship to you, and our giving. And we trust you, we honor you, and we thank you for bringing this, the people together here. And this is our family. This is our church. I pray in our giving, I pray that uh, these finances go to, to uh, just honor the people here, but also to reach those who are not here, Lord God, and to those who are hurting. I pray that we be a light in Thornton and that we understand that you have called us right here. Even in this cafetorium, we honor you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen, amen. Please pass those out. At this time, I, I get the, the privilege of uh, bringing up uh, someone I've heard in the, uh, in the past. Uh, she is a doctor, uh, a professor at Denver Seminary. Her name is Dr. Betsy Spinotto, and uh, she's going to speak to us today. And I hope that you guys have your ears open, and you guys are, uh, I, I think this is going to be such great insight to the calling that we have right here. And so if you guys can give a hand uh, to uh, Dr. Betsy Spinotto. Thanks, John. Good morning. Thank you for having me here with you. As John said, uh, my name is Betsy Spinotto. I am a counseling professor at Denver Seminary. And um, so I have a, I teach full time and then I have a private practice where I see clients and then I get to come in and do really fun things like this on a regular basis to various churches in the community, but also a lot of different organizations across the country as well. So um, I will just own right now, I am not a preacher. I am not going to give you a sermon. <laughs> um, I, I am a teacher and I am a communicator. And so you're, we'll work in spiritual concepts, but we're not going to have like, and this passage says this. So that's not what I'm here for today. Um, to give you a little bit of background, um, I got involved in this topic of how do we understand different generations as different cultures about, gosh, it's been probably about 13 years now. I was in seminary and I was sitting in a Bible class, um, which is probably good that I don't remember which one because now they're my colleagues. So that's, that's probably a good thing. But I was sitting in a Bible class and I remember thinking, if I believe that scripture doesn't change and that good theology doesn't change, why is it that this class is going to help me have a better conversation with my parents, but it's not going to help me have a better conversation with my peers? And it just, it was this, I started thinking like, is it about postmodernism? Is it about philosophy? Like, what is this? And I just kind of filed it away because I didn't, I was, I was 21. I didn't know. I was just kind of like, that's an interesting question. So I ended up in a PhD program for counseling and I needed a dissertation topic and I am not a big researcher. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nerdy person, but I don't really want to do a lot of research. I just want to know stuff, but just enough so that I don't sound stupid, right? And um, so I needed a topic that I could write like a major research paper on. And um, I went back to this question that I'd had. And I started looking at, could you look at different generations as different cultures? Would that be one of the reasons why the presentation of evangelism and discipleship in the Gospels 
made sense to my parents with sitting in a, in a theology class, but it wasn't going to make as much sense to my peers. So I wrote a really big paper on it. And from there, I've started um, exploring this, this question of, can you look at baby boomers, Xers, and millennials as separate cultures? Are they unique enough in their values, their beliefs, and their worldview that we should engage one another, not just as older or younger versions of ourselves, but as actually different cultures? So the conclusion of 200 pages of research was, yes, you can. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, a lot of times I get brought into places um, where baby boomers have been in charge, and they're asking me to come fix the millennials. That's usually my, my invitation in. And I'm, I'm very quick to say, my job is not to fix. I really view each generation as a different part of the body, and we have to honor one another as such. And from what John said, you guys are in a slightly different um, makeup in that most of you are Xers or millennials. You're a younger congregation. So I'm going to talk more from the perspective of how do we empower you all and, and where did you come from? <laughs> um, so one of the premises that we have is that every generation takes for granted the good that has gone before them, reacts against the bad, and then responds within their own historical context. Okay, so we have those three pieces. Every generation takes for granted the good, reacts against the bad, and responds within its context. So we're not just these isolated little come up out of nowhere. We're, we're created in, in light of our environment. So if you think about this as like a, um, if we put this on an individual level, each one of us, when we look back at our childhoods, there are things about the way our parents did things that we just take for granted, that that's just how you parent, right? That's what family dinners look like. That's what allowance looks like. That's what curfew looks like, those types of things. But then we each have, that's the taking for granted the good. And then each of us have these spaces where we go, I will never be the parent who, right? You're reacting against the bad. There's things that your parents did that were probably well-intended, but they didn't work for you, right? So you're reacting against the bad. But then we all have to respond within our own context. So when I was a kid, that meant road trips were the rule in our car was you either have to be buckled or lying down. Because that made a difference, right? And, and when we drove the 12 hours from Ohio to Iowa to see my grandparents, that meant we, my sisters and I both bought pillows that we could lay across the back flooring of our 76 Chevy Impala Right? It was an awesome car. And <laughs> um, it was really great when my five foot three self was trying to learn to drive on a bench seat with my six foot two father. And I had to have it pulled all the way forward and he had to sit sideways, right? Side note, doesn't really matter. But so, you know, we have this laying down in the back seat on the pillows where cultural context today is your like 17 year old has to be rear facing still, right? <laughs> so <laughs> that we take for granted the good, we react against the bad, but then we respond within our own historical context. So if we do that on an individual basis, we also do that on a collective basis. And that's what we're going to look at today. So we're going to focus a little bit more on millennial culture, because that's mostly who you all are. But we've got to set the stage of who you were and how you became who you are. Um, that, that what have you taken for granted, what have you reacted against, and what's the context in which you're creating that sense of identity, okay? Good? All right, sweet. I don't really remember the order of my slides, so I think we're going to track appropriately, but we'll find out, okay? Um, can you all move forward for me? Maybe. Uh, there we go. 
So I really appreciate this quote. It's from a book called Courage and Calling by Gordon T. Smith. Um, if anyone's interested in the concept of how your career or vocation or unpaid work comes into sense of identity, this is a great book. I will say he says that it's for Christians or non-Christians alike, and he's wrong. Like, it's the most Christian easy, throw a Bible verse at everything book ever. But he's got some good stuff in there. And he, but he's, he's also an old white dude. So just be aware of that. But he's got some good things in there, like this. Um, so Smith says, but those who bemoan the next generation's shortcomings grow more and more bitter, angry, disappointed, and cynical. On the other hand, those who bless not only grow old with grace and joy, they have a disproportionate influence on the generation that follows. I always start here, and so poor John, you've probably heard this quote multiple times at this point, but I start here because it's so foundational to me, because it sets this, this stage that the, the relationships that we have with one another are primarily influenced by the attitude we bring to that relationship. So we'd like to believe that if you're respectful to me, then I'll be respectful to you. But it really has to start with, I'm going to be respectful to you and invite you into a respectful relationship with me. And so as we look at the different generational cohorts here and we talk about how we interact together, it's really easy for the older generations to look down and go, why aren't you more like us in this way? But it's also easy for the younger generations to look up and go, where do you lose this and that? And why aren't you more like us in this? But we have a choice, and this is a choice I'm going to ask you to sit with today, of as we learn about these different generations, can you take a posture of why do I need you? rather than what's wrong with you. Because if we, if we look at generations as, the, as, a, as another description of the body of Christ, which I think we can, that what God does and what God brings out in one generation is not what he's going to bring out in another generation. And I can either get upset and frustrated that you don't look and sound like me and you don't have the same passions and social justice issues as I do, or I can go, isn't it really cool that God gave this group of people this passion and this group of people this passion and my group of people this passion because together we care for the world well, all right? So this is our, this is our philosophical premise. So it's going to be real fun to sit there whatever generation you're in and as I talk about you, you'd be like, yeah, that's us, that's great, aren't we wonderful? And you can do that and then get over yourself and start learning about the other ones and why you need them too, okay? So let's keep going. Um, I want to make sure we have an understanding of who we are as a generation. Uh, can you flip the slide for me? Of who we are as each of these generations. And when we talk about generations, who are we talking about? So we're going to start with baby boomers. Um, baby boomers were born between 1946 and 1964. Um, and they, they came into existence, um, or that name came into existence, because of the baby boom that happened after World War II. And the, the age bracket, that 46 to 64, generations get demarcated based off of shared historic life events during key developmental periods of time. So, for example, 9-11 happened to all of us, um, but it's considered a key event for millennials because it happened during their childhood and adolescence, right? So baby boomers share some key life events during key developmental periods of time the civil rights movement, the JFK assassination, the moon landing, those types of things that collectively happened to all Americans, but it was worldview shaping for them, okay? 
Um, the silent generation is the generation before the, the boomers, and they're born between 1925 and 1945. We honestly don't have a lot of research about them because boomers were the ones that started the generational research, and they started with, why are we awesome? We should learn about that. And we don't really care about the man and whoever went before us. So we're going to start with us, and then we're going to go, oh, and then we had babies. We should know about them. So the research went forward, not back, right? So I'm not going to talk a lot about the silent generation, not because they don't matter, but because I want to be respectful that what we say is grounded in research, not just off of perception, okay? So um, I'm going to hit some key pieces that are important to understand in a church context. Um, you can hit the next button for me. Um, um, yeah, that's good. Um, so one of the things that we see as key differences between each of the generations is how we view leadership and how we view authority. And baby boomers were really the last generation that we saw who take a pay your dues approach to leadership, a much more hierarchical approach to leadership. This had been the norm for multiple generations up until boomers, okay? So these are the people that they grew up, so you take your own social context, your, your lived history, that says, if I start at the bottom somewhere and I work really, really hard, I have the potential to reach to the top, right? And that if I am loyal and I am committed to an organization, say in the workplace, that that means that I, will, I have the option of retiring with a gold watch and a pension, right? For the younger ones of us, we go, that is a lovely fairy tale of a land far, far away that we know nothing of, but it sounds amazing, right? But for boomers, that, that was a lived reality, um, that, that they knew people that that existed for. I can look at my grandfather, who retired from um, a utilities company as an engineer in the Midwest, and he died at 73. My grandmother lived another about 15 years past him, and she got to carry all of his insurance benefits with her at the same cost that he was paying in 2003 when he died. That Blue Cross Blue Shield plan is worth gold, right? But that's not my life. That's not your life, right? But that reflected part of this pay your dues leadership, that if I invest into a church, if I invest into a company, if I invest into a community, there's going to be a mutual investment back, right? Um, so this pay your dues leadership comes into play. Um, in, in churches that have an, an older congregation than, than what you guys are, um, this looks like the people who have been around the longest get the loudest say on the budget and the decision making. And when it, I, I always think, I, I grew up in a really conservative Baptist background. And so that to me also is like, who claims what pew? And, and Lord bless the poor visitor who didn't know they weren't supposed to sit in that pew kind of idea, right? So <laughs> I appreciate that some of you have history with that idea as well. That's great. Um, we also see that baby boomers tend to attach more to institutions or denominations than younger generations do. So we moved around a lot when I was a kid, and for my parents that meant that we would flip through um, the yellow pages before there was Google, right? So there's actually, for those of you who didn't know, there's a book, and it carried all of these like organizations and ministries and things, and they were alphabetized, and you could look through there. So um, it was like a portable Google. So we... Um, <laughs> So my parents would go through and find the, the churches that matched our particular Baptist denomination. And that's where we'd start for looking for churches, right? Now, for younger generations, this is not the pattern that we see. We, we actually attach to, to individuals rather than to organizations, 
Okay? So what we've seen in the last 20 years in particular is all of these churches that have denominational affiliations, but now they're a community church, okay? and we drop that, that, that affiliation because younger generations actually see that as something that boxes them in and defines them in ways that they may or may not want to be affiliated with. And, but, but this has been a shift, um, a drastic shift coming from boomer or silent generation where there was value and security and influence in being a part of a larger organization. So think about contextually for baby boomers, when they united as baby boomers, they got social action to happen. Those sit-ins, those picketing, that protesting, the, all of those things happened because 80 million of them united together to make something happen. So there was value in being a part of the VFW. There was value in being a part of the Lions Club. There was value in being a part of something collective. Okay? So younger generations, I've often heard them talk about like, well, why, why are you giving up your individualism and your autonomy? Well, it's because being collective got stuff done. And it was, it was significant. So this formula that I have up here, I stole from my pastor. And I've asked him where he got it. And he goes, I don't remember ever saying that. And I was like, well, I took notes in a sermon and I didn't make it up. So I don't know. Um, but I've told him every time I present, I'm going to have to rip on him that he doesn't know where his sources come from. So, <laughs> um, but what this looks like is that every generation also has its own cultural approach to how they do evangelism and discipleship. And for baby boomers, this was, if I present truth to you and the Holy Spirit is working, then there will be change in your life. So for those of you who have some background in this, this is your four spiritual laws. This is the bridge illustration. This is the Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life idea. And it's not that that isn't, wasn't beneficial. It was very culturally appropriate at the time. It doesn't work anymore, by and large. Um, it's not that if I present truth and the Holy Spirit is working, that change can't happen. God can do that. But as a whole, the culture has shifted and the formula is getting more and more complicated. Okay? So um, when I've gone in and spoken at, in, um, if you're familiar with Campus Crusade, that's not crew or navigators or some of those things, we, we have these conversations about what's happening in your evangelistic outreaches and, and how is that having to look different these days with, in light of the fact that those organizations came in their heyday under boomer culture and, and now they're trying to reach young millennials at this point. So that's a little background on boomers, and we'll bounce back and forth as we keep talking about taking for granted and reacting against. But let's move on um, on the next click to Xers. So Xers are born between 1965 and in 1981. Um, they're the smallest generational cohort, both in terms of the amount of years that they have. Um, there's only 16 years there, but also numerically. They're about 20 million smaller than boomers and about almost 30 million smaller than millennials. Right. Um, it is estimated that, well, let me back up. Part of the reason, um, part of what makes Xers unique is that this was the first generation to be born in American society where you had both um, the birth control pill and abortion available. Um, the abortion became legalized um, during this generation and the birth control pill came into existence in the early 60s. And so it's estimated that if those things hadn't been in play, their numbers would equal the generations around them. Okay. Um, this is the latchkey kid generation. Um, the kids that were, you know, for those of you who 
would be calling social services today. You sent your child home with a, like a rope, a little string around their neck with the house key, and they'd let themselves in, right? Uh, and this that if it impacted the generation significantly, whether you were a latchkey kid or not, there was a much greater sense culturally that children were now a hindrance to personal growth and development because some of the effects that had happened for boomers was you had a lot more economic options um, by and large for boomers and where children had just been the next step of life stages when boomers came along they started going oh I could pursue higher education I could pursue my my professional development we saw women entering the workforce more and more than ever before and children were still for boomers children were still seen as like the next step but by the time Xers came along you had this, these older boomers and younger silence that were going, what if I don't have to have babies right away? What if I could wait a little bit? And this generation then was also, they, they, they have the highest percentage of divorced parents. Um, there are more Xers with divorced parents than millennials or, or boomers with divorced parents. So what we see is a generation that was very much... Um, raised in this culture of individualism and isolation in a lot of ways. They had to choose their affiliations rather than being naturally grafted into a family system. Um, when I was doing research with each generation and I was asking them about their families and how they understood family, boomers would talk about their biological family and be like, well, if, you know, you gotta love them, but you, you know, can't live with them, can't live without them, but this is family and this is what we do. And when I asked Xers about their family, they were the only generation that then looked at me and repeatedly and looked at me and said, you wanna know about my biological family or my chosen family? And for Xers, there was this deep sense of my biological family by and large is very fractured and broken. And the people I choose to be around are my best friend from high school or my college roommate or this person that was at my first job with me and we've grown up in adulthood together and we've raised our children together and we want to do vacations together or we get homes near one another because this is my chosen family All right so we bring that then into how we look at churches and in that we attach to individuals so we end up at a church because our friend went there and we want to be with them in this community. We end up at a church because we like the pastor and we connect with that pastor or small group leader. <laughs> it's an individual connection. And there's nothing wrong with that except what happens when the pastor leave, leaves or your friend takes a job transfer out of town. And so the challenge for churches that are predominantly exer based is that once you get someone in, you need to give them other points of connection beyond what their initial connecting point was. You don't wanna take that one away, that's great. But you need to help create this greater sense of extended family in the community that they've now stepped into, okay? So what we take for granted, we react against, is that we, we look up and we see the older generation that had um, a pay your dues type of leadership. And Xers, as 20 million smaller, we look around and we're like, if I want influence, if I want power anywhere, I'm not gonna get it before all these people die. Right? And there's way too many of them. And so if I'm going to have to just wait you out, I'm never going to have a place. So I can't beat you out in terms of time or longevity, but what if I'm better at it than you? What if I can be more competent than you? So think about this. If you, if you come from a family where you have multiple siblings, usually whatever the oldest sibling is really good at, the next sibling is going to choose something different. 
right? So if your older sibling was really good at basketball, you might still choose sports, but you're going to choose a different sport so that you make your own space, right? So generations do this too. So we look up and we see this, this baby boomer generation who's all about big change, macro level change, and is pay your dues leadership. And we go, mm, I don't want to compete with that, especially when you've got 20 million people on me. I can't compete in that space. But what if I'm better than you? What if I can do that job better, right? So I'll jo jokingly but seriously will say that an exer doesn't care how old you are as long as you can do your job well. You don't care if your pastor's 25 if they're super gifted. You don't care if your boss has been there five years less than you if you can trust the competency of their work. Where for an exer, that's a harder game. Or sorry, for a boomer, that's a harder game to step into a space where their leader is chronologically behind them. All right. So leadership based off of competency, attaching to individuals. And now our formula takes on a little, a little more nuance, a little more layer. So if I present truth that is contextually relevant to you and the Holy Spirit is working, then there will be change. So I need to be able to find a way to say, I'm not just trying to schmooze you and get you to go along with everything else. This is why Jesus matters for you. This is how it makes it, he makes a difference in your life, right? So that, that, can, that context piece becomes important, but it means that evangelism and discipleship is a slower process and is a more relationally engaged process than what we saw for boomers. Okay. Does that make sense? All right. In all fairness, I think it's important just as when we identify with any other cultural identifiers that we own our space. This is where I fall. Um, I am six months away from the boundary line to being a millennial, um, but I am culturally very much an Xer. Um, so what we'll see is that we also have this term called cuspers, and cuspers are those of us that are born within like a year or two of those boundary lines. And in that case, what happens is that other demographic features of who you are pushes or pulls you one direction or the other. So I'm the oldest of three girls born to parents who are smack in the middle of boomer territory, but I was but they are very economically, politically, and religiously conservative, and I was born and raised in the Midwest. So all of those things pull me older. Does that make sense? All right. Um, I will also take this point and caveat. As much as I think generational differences are interesting, I don't think that they are the most important factor in who you are. Um, I think that we have various other cultural identifiers, whether that's race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, that all speak louder into who we are. This is a good piece, this is an important piece, but I don't think it should trump the other pieces, okay? It needs to be taken in a collective of, if I walked into the room and all you said was, oh, you're a female, so I know that means this and this and this and this and this about you. Not necessarily true. Right? So don't just look at someone and go, oh, you're a boomer, so that means this and this and this is about you. Or you're a millennial, so this and this and this and this. It's a piece that you hold loosely and let each individual speak into who they actually are. Okay? So that's our backdrop. Let's go on to who millennials are. Uh, so millennials are born between 1981, 1982 and 2001. Um, they got their name because they, um, they actually were who they want to be. Um, in the class of 2000, which would be people who were born in 1982. <laughs> Way to go. Thanks. Okay, I just have a side note on that. Um, 
I've, I've been doing this for about seven years. And the first few years that I was, was speaking, most, like I said, most of the time I was going into boomer territory. And I'd, I'd ask kind of like, how many of you are boomers? How many of you are Xers? How many of you are millennials? And it was like time after time after time, everywhere I went, I'd say, how many of you are boomers? And somebody in the group would go, woohoo! Right? Arms up, everything, like whole shebang. No other generation has ever done that, but thank you. Um, <laughs> um, I will say in the last couple of years, millennials are starting to voice themselves a little bit more. And I think it's because we're getting, you're getting old enough and loud, large enough that you can take over some of that space. But it was really funny for about five years that it was only boomers that would like own the room. Um, so millennials got their name because they were asked actually, who do you want to be? There were multiple names floating around from the net generation to the echo boom to generation Y. That's probably the most common one that you'll hear in addition to millennials. Same idea. Um, my snarky comment is that people who say Gen Y are just baby boomers who haven't done research in the last five to 10 years. Um, but that's just me. So <laughs> um, I, I value using the millennial term because if I, view, if I view generations as cultures, if I'm a sociologist or an anthropologist and I'm going into um, a, new cult, a new space, like say we're going into the Amazon somewhere and we've discovered a new tribe that's there, we don't come in and say, we really think we should call you the butterfly people. Right? We're going to come in and say, tell us who you are. How do you self-identify? What's important to you? What name do you want to go by? And so if I'm going to approach generations as cultures, I'm going to do the same thing. And we asked millennials what they wanted to be called, and we gave them all of these options, and they said we want to be millennials. Because we don't want to be Gen Y, because it says we're just continuing Gen X, and dear goodness, we don't want to be that. And we also don't want to be the echo boom, because it says it's, we're just repeating our parents, and we're sure as heck not doing that. We want to be called millennials because... Our unique position in history is that we reach adulthood in the new millennium. The oldest millennial turned 18 in 2000. So they chose a name that demarcated who they were in history. So let's, let's be respectful of that. Let's honor that and not call them Gen Y. Okay? So that's my own little soapbox. But let's keep going on here. As a side note, I don't think I said this. Gen X really got named by who they weren't. So they are the lost middle child in the family. If any of you are middle children, you feel like you got lost because your parents were focused on oldest and youngest, like that's who Xers are. We got named because uh, we actually didn't get a name until 1992 when there was a novel that came out that was satirically commenting on who we were. And so 92, when the youngest one was born in 81, right? So we've been around for like 25 years before we actually get a name, right? How's that for middle child? Like, I don't really care who you are. You're just going to be kid, right? And, and we realized that, hey, wait a second. These people aren't extra. These aren't people aren't boomers anymore. Maybe we should give them a name. But we really don't understand this, like, Seattle grunge rock thing that's happening right now. So we're just going to throw an X on them, like an algebra when you had to solve for X, and it's the mystery letter or mystery number. That's who we were, right? That's really where it came from. So we are, Xers are defined by who we're not. We're not boomers who ended in, in 64 and we're not millennials who started in 82. That's all, right? So, and yeah, I, I get a little defensive of us. Like, we, we have our own place, come on. All right, so let's move the slide ahead for me here. Um, one more time. Can you just go ahead and fill the slide up for me? Thanks. Um, so I wanna talk about a few, I think there's probably like five, three or five clicks, something like that. Um, 
so there's a bunch of different thematic pieces that come up for millennials that are really different than the previous generations. And I want to take a second to just highlight the fact that every generation has at least two different kind of tracks to who they are. So if you think of, of, of um, baby boomers, you had the part of the generation that was entrepreneurial and really setting up infrastructure as a society and proactive in social rights movements and all of this. And then you had the hippies, right? And if we said all boomers were hippies, that's not going to be an appropriate depiction of who they are, right? Millennials have their two kind of tracks as well. The first track is a generation that is very well educated, whether it's formal education or just self-taught because of what the internet has provided for us. It's a generation that's more culturally diverse and more multiculturally sensitive than previous generations. It's a generation that is very much aware and integrated within a global society. So there's a greater recognition that what happens to me here in Denver is going to impact the world and the world impacts me. Um, they're, they're much more team oriented. They're much more collaborative. There's a higher emphasis on empathy and, and connection with other people. Those are your kind of like rock star millennials, right? That's the, that's the main, actually the main track. But then our, our sub-track that parallels to our hippies is all of the negative publicity you've heard about millennials, that they're entitled, that they're narcissistic, that they can't get out of their parents' basement because they're lazy, all of this kind of thing, right? And <laughs> I will say, just in defense of the millennials in the basement, like, especially in Denver, dear goodness, how are you supposed to afford your own place, right? So I think there's also a big difference between the failure to launch and the economically wise, right? There, there's, there's some differences there. But what I really want to push on is this entitled versus expectancy piece. So what I saw is, and I work with a lot of millennials. I've, I've, I teach grad school, but for that I was teaching undergrad, and so most of my students are millennials. And watching this, I, I started seeing this difference between entitlement and expectancy, and I got really defensive of millennials as I was reading the literature on them that entitlement has this sense of I am better than and therefore owed more than you, right? And expectancy, in contrast, says what I have known in the past is what I expect to continue in the future. And most millennials were raised in homes that were pushing more toward child-centered parenting and were raised in K-12 situations that gave you a sticker for everything. And you were the center of that educational system, right? And so if my first 18 years of life structured the world around me, why would I not expect that to continue into an adulthood? Not because I think I'm better than you, not because I think I'm owed more, but because I know no different, right? Now, that doesn't mean that you don't encounter entitled millennials, but you also encounter entitled boomers and Xers too because that's a personality trait more than it's a generational trait. Um, as a side note, boomers were the first generation that Time Magazine labeled as Generation Me. So we want to talk about entitled generations. Every generation keeps thinking the next one is the entitled one. Right? So as, you, in, as a millennial, to know that a lot of people expect you to have this entitlement attitude, but to check yourself in kind of your own motive as to, is it because I think I'm better than and I'm owed more, or is there something that goes, oh, I've never known any different. And maybe I have to shift my expectation 
as I step into something new. So in a business context, in a workplace setting, what that often looks like is, um, I had a millennial tell me uh, that she said, we feel like we've gotten the short end of the stick because previous generations, their K-12 education was this like on-ramp into the real world. And sure, there's a little little hump when you, you get into that. She said, but as millennials, we kind of feel like we were given this on-ramp that then led us to have to make this like evil Knievel jump across the Grand Canyon to finally get into the real world. And the ramp we were put on doesn't actually lead to where everybody else is going. And I thought, oh, that's a really good picture. And so when I'm talking to a group that's predominantly older, my challenge is you can get frustrated at 90 million people for not knowing the world that you grew up in, or you can recognize that culturally we all had a hand in creating their expectations. And that now we have a responsibility to say, how do we help you cross that Grand Canyon chasm? But as a millennial, unfortunately, sorry, we gave you a really crappy hand, right? But we all have been given hands that we have to figure out how to play. So if you look around and you go, okay, wait, everybody else, everybody else seems like they've got this different on-ramp, who do you need to pull in? What questions do you need to ask? What posture do you need to take in order to be able to make that jump? Right? This is where I think in the church we have a fabulous opportunity to, to truly engage in mentorship with one another. And mentorship needs to be a two-way street. Right? But for <clears throat> when I first got to the seminary, I was asked to give this talk in front of faculty, which was hilarious, because when I got hired, I was 20 years younger than any of the other faculty. So that was kind of fun to walk in and be like, let me tell you what you're doing wrong, right? And um, <laughs> um, I didn't quite take that posture. I was a little more gracious than that. But, um, but I'd said it on that talk of like, you, the, the older generation needs to look around and go, who are the younger people that I see potential in, that I relate with, that I go, you remind me of me, or you remind me of somebody I care about. Can I help bring that into fruition in you? And for the younger people to look around and go, I want to be like you when I grow up. I think that we can say that question, ask that question no matter how old we are, right? But, but to some level go, it doesn't mean I want to be exactly like you, but there's something in you that I value that I don't have on my own, and I need that. I'm only going to learn it through relationship. And then it becomes this mutual benef mutually beneficial give and take of who I am and who you are. And who I am impacts you and who you are impacts me. So I gave this talk and then Craig Blomberg came up to me. Craig Blomberg is one of our New Testament scholars at the seminary. He's one of the NIV translators as well. So like he, he kind of does a lot of stuff and he's pretty respected. And Craig comes up to me and says, I'm going to do what you said. And I was like, oh shoot, what did I say? I don't really remember. And um, he said, how would you feel about getting lunch once a month? And Craig's been at the seminary, at that point, Craig had been at the seminary for about 25 years. Um, and he's a seminary history keeper. And so I was like, um, okay, you don't turn that down, right? And so we started getting together once a month for lunch. And what he had said to me was, I will do this so long as you also acknowledge that I have things to learn from you and I want to be able to learn from you too. And it set up this posture of, it doesn't challenge the respect I have for him. It doesn't challenge his seniority over me in many ways. But it creates a relationship that frees me up to say, hey, I'm noticing you're doing this. Help me understand why. Because from where I stand, that seems whatever. Okay? And, and we've already established that this is mutually beneficial. So whatever critique I have is, for, is in your best interest and is for your good. All right? So my challenge 
to you all in this is, is as a millennial, who do you look up to and go, I want that relationship with you and invite someone into that space. So I have a mentor who, um, she's only, I think she's only about seven years older than I am, six years older than I am. Um, but her life stage is far ahead of me. Um, she and her husband have been married for almost 20 years and they've got a 17 year old daughter and I got married two years ago, you know, so like really different life stage. And my personality and my temperament, I'm, I'm really nerdy. I'm really strong-willed. A lot of the characteristics that I would identify with are more masculine than feminine in terms of personality type. And Vivi is a feisty Guatemalan woman, right? Very feminine, but very strong. And I'd come to her and I said, I want to learn how to step into my femininity more like you do. And she was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I said, I know, because it's just who you are. And I said, I don't, I don't need you to teach me something. I just need you to let me do life with you. And, and I will have questions in that space, but I, this is my goal, is to integrate more of my full self, and you model this in a way that I couldn't learn. I can just take in. And so we, we get together about once a month, and through that relationship, when my husband and I started dating, then he got brought into their family system too, and her husband ended up marrying us. And those are the spaces of, that's mentorship. It doesn't have to be this formal book study or anything like that. It's, let's do life together. And I remember walking into their house one day, and as I walked in the front door, her husband walked out the back door, and because um, he was on his way to something. It wasn't, it wasn't a rejection of me. <laughs> right. And... Um, I said, how are you doing? And she was like, oh, I really don't like him right now, so it's really good that he's leaving. <laughs> and I just, I looked at her and I said, thank you. I said, that's real life. And so tell me how you guys end up resolving that. What does that look like for y'all? Because I grew up in a home where my parents didn't model argument at all. Everything was always wonderful and fine. I'm not that person. That is not going to be my home, right? And so... I appreciated how deeply just raw they were able to be. That's mentorship. It's really difficult for many boomers because so much of their cultural norm was to show the right facade and that testimonies were given after everything was clean and pretty. But for millennials and Xers too, there's this high value on authenticity and genuineness and being real in the midst of yuck because we all have yuck. And that's where Jesus actually meets us. And if all I know is the pretty story at the end, I have no idea how to get through this desert. I don't know how to get through this wilderness when I am dying on the inside. But if I can walk with people older than me in a further life stage than me, and they can model what it looks like to be really pissed at God, but still be in relationship with him, to be angry and hurt and disappointed with your spouse, but be committed and to, to wrestle with pain and wrestle with disappointment and being, being sad and, and just devastated by the choices your children are making, but to still be in it. That's where I grow, and that's where I actually feel safer with you, and I, we can build together as a body. So that gets into our experience pieces, our value on relationships as millennials, that instead of this hierarchical structure or this competency piece, it's actually we want leadership based off of relationship. That if it may not even be a really personal one, but if from the pulpit or from the front of a classroom or something, that person's 
authentic and disclosing of one's full self, we go, I can trust you. Because if we look around the culture and we go, okay, everywhere we turn, we have political figures, entertainment figures, religious figures falling because of skeletons in closets. It is much safer if we know what your skeletons are from the get-go. Because I'd much rather choose to honor and love you in full awareness of who you are rather than feel like you blindsided me or betrayed me later on, right? Um, so I'm going to jump a little bit here. So our formula now is if I present truth in a context that is relevant to you through the process of relationship and the Holy Spirit is working, then we will have change, right? So now we have just slowed that evangelistic and discipleship process way down, right? Because this generation has been told at every turn that Nike's going to make their life better, Coke's going to make their life better, Reebok's going to make their life better, and you come in and say, Jesus is going to make your life better. Why? I have all these other things that will make my life better. Why do I need Jesus? So go to one more slide for me, and we'll start wrapping up here. I'm going to cruise through a bit. One of the things that I think we have missed in previous generations is the costliness and the the weightiness of the gospel. We so badly wanted Jesus to be relational and a friend, which he can be, that we missed that the gospel is something you give your life for. And for a millennial, there are so many things around them that makes their life better, but doesn't give them a reason to give up, get up in the morning. It doesn't provide an existential reason for their existence and their being. But as humans, we're made to connect with something bigger. We are made to be people who worship. And we will worship that which is around us until we're given something greater. So the gospel needs to actually call people to something greater. So instead of Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, it almost shifts to Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but it's going to be the most jacked up, painful, costly plan that you've ever imagined. And it is going to turn your life upside down, but at the end of your life, you will have lived for something so much greater than yourself that has an eternal impact. And you, you will have legacy, not because of who you are, but because of who, whose you are and who you gave your life for. Do you want in on that? It means that church is no longer about how many, how many butts you fill in the seat. It's about how deep does your discipleship go because we are no longer in a culture that is predominantly Christian. And you're going to have to equip people to be what David Kinnaman calls exiles in Babylon. So if you parallel this generation to Daniel and his friends who got exiled into Babylon, they had to, they're, they're sitting in the audience with the king, right? They had the king of Babylon there, and they had to figure out, what do I need to boil the, the, my faith down to? Is it sacrificing at the temple? Is it worshiping in Jerusalem? Is it all this nope, I got to boil this all down. And how do I engage audience with the king so that I make a cultural impact in this community? That requires a much deeper faith than a head knowledge or a Jesus loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. So discipleship in the church for millennial, especially millennial congregation, needs to be about deep faith. That doesn't necessarily mean heady faith. There is good theology that I think needs to go with that. But it's that authentic faith that asks you how you engage Jesus when things are hard, not when things are smooth and easy and the culture supports you. But what does this look like to give your life to the king, to the God of the universe? 
Okay. Um, I'm about out of time, so I'm going to wrap up here. There is, when I look at when I look at millennial culture, I get really excited, and simultaneously, scared's probably not the right word. This is a generation that is the least churched of all generations in American history. They are a generation that are the least interested in not just church, but spirituality as a whole um, than any other generation. So you're in an uphill battle. If you don't have a fertile field in front of you, you have a bunch of people that go, why? why? I'm fine on my own. And so how, the excitement to me is you've got these rock, the rock star millennial track, right? That is super well equipped to reach the world around them. But how do you get them engaged? How do you how do you help them say, I have all of these things, and it's not enough because without Jesus, it doesn't matter. Right? The only way you have that conversation that is actually beneficial is through a relationship. It's not through apologetics discussions. It's not through another theology class or a Bible study, although scripture needs to be incorporated. It is through relationship. So whatever that looks like here at Hill City in this community, is it's got to be grassroots in your homes, in your day-to-day life. And that doesn't mean that there, it doesn't, you don't bring people into this space, but it means it has to go past this space, right? So... Um, that, I think, is this space of when, when, when we step into the lives of people like this, then there is room to see this exponential growth and change. Because if, if you pour into somebody and their faith runs deep, then they pour into two or three people and their faith runs deep. And they each run into two, pour into two or three and their faith runs deep. And now we have a far more exponential reach than if we just got 150 people in here for a pizza party. Great. But I would much rather see deep disciples than, I, than see this shallow faith that inoculates people to actually giving their life to the king of the universe. So um, we can just cruise through this slide because just, we're just going to go right past it all. Um, I, I could talk about this for like three hours, and I'm happy to chat with any of you afterwards. But I also, my, the book that Craig and I then, Craig Blomberg and I then went on to write together um, it goes through a lot of this. It's called Effective Generational Ministry, which I think is our last slide. Um, and it unpacks more and more about who each generation is and then also where each generation captures the gospel well and where they've bought into the culture too much. Um, and then the final chapter on each generation is how do you do ministry for and with that generation? Um, it's, I've had plenty of people come up to me and be like, I hope you're not offended, but I just skipped to the millennial chapters because I, I just don't get them. What I found about that is the book makes sense if you do that too. We wrote it in the idea of every generation takes for granted the good, reacts against the bad, and responds within context. So in my mind, you need the context, but I'm being told you don't. So go ahead, just pick what's interesting to you. Um, this is on Amazon if you're interested. I'm the only Spinoto on Amazon, so it's pretty easy to find. Um, but I, I appreciate the energy that you guys had. I love watching, like I, I watch all your faces and. That your nonverbals are real helpful. Thanks. That's great. <laughs> um, but my contact information's up there too. If if I can be of help to any of you, if you're leading a small group or you're trying to do outreach into your community or anything, let me know. Um, I'd love to be a resource for you. So, thanks for having me.
Let's just stand to close. Oh, man. Uh, get this book. Get this book. Support, support what she's doing. Um, and I'm just so excited that we got to hear from her uh, today. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, more than anything, I feel like we have such a deep call for discipleship. God, that we would be willing to take time out of our life and invest it into people even way before, to see the good in people, way before they see even the benefit of our life, God. That we would see people, Lord, differently through your eyes. That we would see people differently with your heart. Instead of saying, give me something, bring me something, I pray that we are of people, we are a church, Hill City Church, would be a people say, I got something for you, even if you give me nothing in return. I pray that that is the start, the heart of discipleship on both sides. And I pray that we are willing, even if we don't know how to do it, that we are willing to take a step into the dark and say, God, use me to position me into a place where I can affect lives and I choose to do it, even if it, if, if it takes away from what I want to do, God. I pray that we truly, like, like uh, Dr. Spinotto said, we serve the king of the universe. Lord, you're just not a religion or a, or a, a feel-good, Lord, that we come here and there to make us feel good, Lord. We commit ourselves to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here. And uh, thank you, Dr. Spinotto. Thank you so much.